You're tuned into Going Long with Bruce Murray. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce Murray. Welcome to my podcast where every week we spend time in the world of sports, talking with celebrities, talking with athletes, talking to people in all walks of life about their love of sports. And this week we talk about to an individual that was involved in the world of sports. And I'm not sure they come any better. And it's a cliche we throw out all the time. He's one of the good guys. But Joe Thomas is actually one of the good guys, a future Hall of Famer in the National Football League. He will be there when his name is called in just a couple of years. He came into the league in 2007 and was a pro bowler as a rookie. Now, you may not think that amounts to much, but consider, I don't believe there's been a left tackle that started as a rookie that's made a pro bowl since he was drafted in 2007. Three years later, he became an all-pro and was a fixture, six of the next seven years, a first-team All-Pro. Before retiring after 11 years, having played just seven games in his last year, and he talks about that in our conversation about how the body just got to him. You'll hear about him not going to the NFL draft and why he didn't want to go to the NFL draft. You'll hear why he thought he was a great fit in Cleveland, as opposed to going to Los Angeles or New York or Chicago. You'll hear what he's done after he left the game of football and how he's dealt with not only weight loss, but keeping weight on as a football player. Something that you think, well, that's got to be very easy to do. Who doesn't want to gain weight? It's not easy for everybody. That was a challenge that he actually dealt with. But he was a great player the second he got onto the football field. He was a great player the second he walked off the football field. And I think we all have that same instinct. As good as you were, why did you want to do it your entire time in Cleveland? Why didn't you want to go someplace else to win? And he answers the question of what he'd rather have, a Super Bowl ring or a Hall of Fame ring. You'll hear all of that in this conversation with Joe Thomas. I hope you enjoy it. My conversation today is with Joe Thomas, who I oftentimes introduce as the other rookie that shared a room with my radio host, Brady Quinn. Although there may come a time when he's better remembered. Uh, and he's with me today. Joe, it's it's great to have you with us. Great to have you with me, I should say, without my co-host sitting next to me, kind of dominating the conversation. How are you? I'm doing good. And I'm glad we dropped that dead weight, Brady <laughs> Quinn. You know, I, I I dropped him as my roommate after my second year in the NFL and things really took off. So <laughs> I'd encourage you to do the same thing. Now, before we get in depth into the conversation, uh, I think it's interesting. Look, the, the, the podcast goes up on time, but it never gets taped when it goes up. And there's a little background into the conversation we're having. We had scheduled it for a certain time and you texted me and you said, I should be there, but I'm running about six minutes late. I'm caught behind a horse and buggy. Tell me what that was all about. Yeah, so I have a farm in Wisconsin and uh, I go out there a lot of times during the day. It's not too far from my house. Um, but today I actually ran into a little traffic jam in one of the local small towns in Wisconsin. I got stuck behind an Amish uh, cart and buggy, uh, horse and buggy, and it was an interesting one because there was actually four horses, and it was like the Oregon Trail covered wagon, so it must have been a a big family of Amish that were moving through, Uh, and it's especially interesting because we have a lot of Mennonite near where my farm is, but we don't have a lot of Amish. So I felt very blessed that although I was a little bit tardy for the podcast, (laughs) I was able to uh, experience the once in a lifetime Amish uh, covered wagon on the uh, Wisconsin trail. Now now you're in what? What are you driving in when you're behind this horse and buggy? 
I'm in a, uh, a Ram truck. You're in a Ram truck. And is yeah. there any effort on their part to kind of get out of the way for you to get, like, are you on a single, I'm picturing this on your farm, yes. like on a single <laughs> dirt road, like like we're watching a Bonanza from the 40s. <laughs> What's going on here? Yeah, so it's that time of year, Bruce, where uh, by me in Wisconsin, everybody's harvesting their corn and their soybeans. So there's a lot of farm traffic and, uh, you know, the horse and buggy, they, they take priority. You don't want to go around and be crazy getting around these folks because uh, they, they don't have the off-road tires that I do to where they can easily move over to the side of the highway to let pe- too many people go past. Yeah. L- living in a suburb of New York, something that I don't think I'll have to deal with. There are other <laughs> other hurdles that we have to get through here, but not dealing behind a horse and buggy getting into New York City. But, you know, you know, there's so many things that I want to talk to you about. And I know, we, I know we don't have a ton of time. So you're on an active farm. Now, I work with Brett Favre once a week and he's on an active farm. And he's gotten to the point, I ask him about this all the time, do you like it? And he goes, you know, I, I'm kind of getting to the point where it's hard and it's a real <laughs> challenge to do this. I'm not sure if I want to do this anymore. Tell me about your farm. Like, how big is it? What are you harvesting? Is it for you or is it for others? Yeah, yeah. So it's for me. I, I was a weird boy growing up in Wisconsin where I dreamed of not necessarily playing in the NBA or the NFL, but I dreamed of owning a farm one day. And I didn't grow up in the farm. I grew up in the suburbs. So I think it was a little bit of my like Tom Sawyer youth coming out, but also maybe the romantic side of uh, being a farmer and owning a farm. So we, we raise beef cattle. We've got alfalfa, soybeans and corn. And uh, it's not personally for me. I sell all of my, my goods to the market. Um, but hopefully in the next year or so, we'll start being able to raise some beef for the family, which I'm kind of excited about. But the best thing so far has just been able to take take the kids out there and kind of show them where their food actually comes from. And, uh, you know, I think that's been really neat because most kids think that their food kind of comes from the supermarket. Is it a conversation, Andrew, if I tell you that I'm a vegetarian? No, I love vegetarians. I love vegetables. I grow a lot of vegetables in my garden. So uh, I, I do not have a disdain for vet, uh, vegetarians. They leave plenty more meat for me. So I can say thank you for that. So, so when, when, you're, when you're harvesting the crops, because I know nothing about farming other than what I've seen on television. And I read, obviously, I know about the issues of farming in this country. And you probably don't have to worry about that from an income perspective. But you're selling it to who? Do you have a middleman? Is there somebody that comes and purchases it and then resells it? Like, like, how does the whole farming business work for you? Yeah, it's um pretty simple where I am because we have an elevator in town. And so you bring your corn or soybeans to the market and it goes on big trucks uh, or sometimes it goes on rail cars and they just weigh it and then they pay you right there. And then a lot of it goes to Chicago where I am. Um, and from there, I think, it, honestly, a lot of it goes overseas. Like your soy goes, I, I believe, over to Asia. They use a lot of soy in the feed for animals. Um, and I think a lot of the corn goes over there. We used to use a lot of corn for ethanol in this country, but we don't use ethanol much anymore. And that's why the, the corn price is low. But that's my, uh, my own who sets complaints as a farmer. Who sets the market on corn? Is it like a commodity where like yeah, you, it's know a commodity. The the Chicago, you go in based on what the trade yeah. is? Yep, yep. So the Chicago Board of Trade in, in Chicago, obviously, they run just like the New York Stock Exchange, where the price goes up and down, supply and demand, you know, so if you follow it really closely, which I don't, because I much rather follow the NFL on a daily basis. But if you were to follow it every day, you could follow during the summer. And when there's little spikes, there's drought concerns in Iowa, you know, the price of corn and beans will go up. And then what you can do is you can market some of it so I can sell a future essentially. So I could sell some of my corn in the summer, even though I haven't harvested it. And then I just have to make sure that I give them 
as much corn or soybeans as I have sold already uh, when time comes to harvest in the fall. All right. How, how many acres are we talking about? How much corn do you it's, have? It's, it's, a, it's enough corn that uh, if I were to eat it, my family wouldn't go hungry. <laughs> so not a gigantic like, you know, agro farm, but just. No, it's not. It's not like out in the Dakotas or like in the Plain States where these guys have like 20,000 acres and they're riding combines for months at a time harvesting everything. I mean, it's it's a, it would be considered more of a hobby farm around here. You'd be pinching pennies if that was your only income. Do you, do you have a staff or is this just all family run? Um, I've got some farmers that work for me. So when I'm not around, because as you know, as a farmer, like there's times when you have to plant. And if I'm going and doing a game or something, uh, you're SOL. So I've got people that uh, help me with that, thankfully. Um, but I do a lot of the management of the cattle when we're around. So um, basically, I, I try as much as I can. I have limited knowledge, limited experience. But when I'm around, I try as much as I can. When I'm not, I've got the professionals. All right. Last thing on this before we get into uh, how you got the farm, and that would be by playing football. And it's it's a family. You know, you have a family. So yeah. what, what, like when you said, this is my goal after playing, do they have to be on board with this or you just, or do you just go, Hey folks, we're living on a farm. That's the way. It's yeah, yeah. So we actually live in town outside of Madison. Um, but this is kind of like the getaway, right? Like, and it was great during COVID because it gave us a place to kind of escape to and feel a little bit normal Let the kids run around outside um, when we were doing homeschool. So we actually lived out there for about three months this spring, right when COVID hit. Um, but I actually bought the farm not too long after I got in the NFL, like three or four years after I got in the NFL. So before kids um, and the wife, of course, was a little skeptical. She wasn't quite sure about, you know, the whole farming thing, because it wasn't like a, a jazzy farm you might find in New York where it's got some big palatial estate. I mean, it was it was a working farm and there, there was some rough buildings and there was no no house or anything that, um, you know, you could bring a family to and, and live on. Um, so, but we, we've made it nice and now the kids love going out there, right? It's, it's, uh, being able to run around outside. If they, if the kids just run around naked, it doesn't matter. There's no neighbors to see them, you know, if they get dirty and come inside, it's not a big deal. So, uh, it's fun. It's just kind of a place where kids can be kids and I can go pretend to be a kid also. Yeah. So, so it sounds like that life after football for you, uh, has been suck. very easy. You know, I, I did a podcast <laughs> with Brian Urlacher and you're still involved in the game and, and he's loving life too. He rides his bicycle all the time. He plays golf, but he has, he, he, he went into broadcasting for like a year, decided he didn't want to put the effort in because it's work. You know, you got to know what's going on in the league. And he goes, I'm just happy now. I wake up and I do what I want when I want. You stayed in the game, which I want to talk about, but I mean, is that the beauty of doing what you did, the freedom to just say, I'm happy. And if I want to, I can. If I don't, I don't need to. Well, that was the great part about playing in the NFL and, you know, being a high paid left tackle. I, I knew that that would set me up in retirement post football to do what I loved and do what I wanted. And, um, you know, at the time it was doing the farming thing and kind of uh, doing the family thing. And then when I retired from football, I stumbled into the analyst role and all of a sudden I, I realized, wow, this gives me great fulfillment. I feel productive. I feel excited to wake up and uh, it is work. Yes, but it's football. It's sports. It's, you know, it's like every little boy's dream is being around the game and getting paid to do it. And so for me, I, I know that I do have to sacrifice some things to be able to be an NFL analyst, but it gives me so much more satisfaction to still being around the game, still 
making sure that I know everything about all the teams, but yet I'm not committed on a level of a coach. And that was one thing I didn't want to do. I wanted to be around the game, but I didn't want to have to give up my life again to go be a coach. But, but you know the challenges that come with being an analyst as a former player that played at the highest level. And listen, I believe that oftentimes even guys that played the game fall into the same trap that, that sometimes we do, which is to you know, evaluate the success and failure of players and, and you know, give them grades and evaluate plays. You've lived through it. How did you like being analyzed when you were part of a football team that oftentimes wasn't being thrown bouquets? Yeah, well, it's not so much fun, especially when people are critical of you. And I think that's part of the maturation process of the NFL is when you're young, especially rookie year, fresh out of college, everything that people say about you, you feel so sensitive about it, right? And I don't care who you are, Tom Brady, Peyton Manning, it doesn't matter. People are going to say and write bad things about you at some point because nobody has played a perfect career, much less a perfect game. So there's always criticism. So until you just like understand that the only criticism that matters is from your teammates and from your coaches, it's easier to just accept the fact that people on the outside world that are outside of the locker room, that are outside of the football building, they're going to be critical. That's okay. All I can do is focus on what I control and what I control is how well I perform being the best version of myself and if somebody else on the outside doesn't like it that's okay I'm just trying to please my coaches and I'm trying to help my teammates in any way that I possibly can you remember being criticized when you came when you came into the Browns organization you know I think everybody does I remember I'm not maybe specifically but certainly there was times when maybe I had a bad game or had uh, a few penalties, especially penalties I disagreed with. And people would say, hey, you know, Joe didn't play a great game. And, you know, you take it too personally, I think, especially early on. But by the latter part of my career, I didn't take it personal. It didn't bother me anymore. And I didn't really even see it. Um, and I was lucky that when I started in the NFL, there was no social media. And so it wasn't as readily available. Like you actually had to physically go and read the newspaper if you wanted to read somebody saying something bad about you. Or at that time, you could still get stuff on the internet. But now it's so readily available for players, it's hard to block it out because it's literally on your phone every time you open it up and every time you open up social media. Yeah, and yet you've embraced social media. I mean, you've got a ton of followers and you're very funny on social media. So you, well, you, you. you must enjoy it. <laughs> I do. And, and it's great now as an analyst, like, I get to criticize people at times. I get to have fun with it. And so uh, I think as a player, it would be hard and I probably wouldn't have it, uh, especially a young player, if I couldn't manage people saying bad things about me. If I focused on that and I lost energy being emotionally attached to what some nameless, faceless person on Twitter said about me. What, what, did you grow up as a football fan? I did. I was a huge Packer fan. I grew up in Wisconsin. Yep. Okay. Big so, Packer so you, fan. You knew about the Browns history, obviously. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They hadn't won double digit games for a long time since before you got there. Your rookie yep. season, you win double digit. They haven't won 10 since. When you get drafted by a team like that, look, I know every player wants to be part of that resurrect. They want to be part of the, the, the organization that turns it around. And it never really happened there. What, what are you thinking as a young kid who's a football fan, knows about their history, um, and now you're going to be part of that? Yeah, so I grew up in Wisconsin, went to Wisconsin. So this was going to be my first foray into moving outside of the state of Wisconsin. And honestly, the thing that I was thinking about the most was like, what is my fit going to be with the city of Cleveland, the state of Ohio, and the football fans of the Cleveland Browns? Um, I think just being a kid that was kind of a homebody growing up, um, I was concerned about getting drafted to like an Arizona or a Miami or an LA team or, or a California team because it was going to be like a fish out of water. And so for me, I was going to have to not only adapt to NFL 
and the speed of the game and the increased competition and trying to find my fit within the team. Like I was also additionally concerned with like going and living in an area that was completely different than what I was used to. Like, I'm not going to say I was afraid of the big city, but it was intimidating to me. Like I wasn't a kid that grew up going to New York city. And if I would have all of a sudden been supplanted there, I think it would have taken some, some time for me to figure out like, okay, this is how I fit into this city. And so for me being drafted by Cleveland, it was great. Like, Hey, my dad's family is from Toledo, Ohio. So I'd been in Ohio a bunch when I was a kid. I'd been fishing on Lake Erie. Uh, I knew the history of the franchise. Milwaukee was a lot was where I grew up. And it's a lot like Cleveland as far as being on the lake and the sort of manufacturing base and the blue collar fans. And it was just an easy fit and an easy transition for me. And I knew that the people that were Browns fans would appreciate offensive linemen and offensive line play. Whereas if I would have been drafted to Arizona, there probably would have been a lot of booze getting drafted <laughs> to Cleveland. They're, they're excited. They're like, yeah, we need an offensive lineman. Yeah, we, we like this Grungy. guy. We're okay with grungy blue collar linemen. But, you know, it, it's funny because, you know, you played college football at Wisconsin. And when you're in college football, you do a lot of traveling, obviously. But, you know, most of those are college towns, whether it's Ann Arbor or Bloomington. So you're not in the big city. I don't know if you played in any bowl games in big cities because I, I don't know what the bowl history was. But did your parents as a kid take you to see anything outside of Wisconsin that 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 you remember acclimating you to what that experience could have been like if you went there? Yeah, we went to Canada and we went canoe camping and fishing in the middle of nowhere. So it was, we, we went to less populous areas. We didn't go to New York City because like, like me, my dad was a cheapskate. So he wasn't taking us to New York City because can you imagine how expensive the taxis would be? You know, it, he would just go You could drive to Chicago. Yeah, we did go to Chicago a few times. We went to like the Science Museum and oh, yeah. um, the aquarium. They've got a shed aquarium, great aquarium there. So went there a few times. But I, I remember like my parents, I mean, my dad worked in Milwaukee, so he wasn't like a country bumpkin. But um, when we'd go there, I remember all the stress about like, oh, you got to pay for parking. Then you got to, you got to walk here. Then you got to get on the subway and then you got to get on the train. And then I got to pay all this money for a hotel. And like, it was like the stress of being in the city wore off on the kids. And so I was afraid of the big city, I think a little bit. <laughs> you know, I, I lived for 10 years in Chicago, used to go up to Wisconsin from time to time, always made a stop at the broth stop. Have you been to yeah. the broth stop on the way down to Chicago? You know, I never have. And, and now since I've uh, expanded my horizons, I love New York City now. I love going down to Chicago because I live in Madison. So it's only two and a half hours. Yeah. Um, I was actually just there a couple of weeks ago, but uh, never stopped at the broth stop only because there's plenty of brats in Wisconsin. <laughs> so I don't have to stop right at the border on the way home. Uh, classic cheese fries. It, it's it's worth the trip once. Yeah, Wasn't maybe there, I'll check it out. Was the Cheese Castle up there, or am I thinking of something? The, the Cheese Castle, I think, is in like Kenosha or yeah, the Mars Cheese like Castle that. or something like. Yeah, that. Yeah, you always drive it on the highway. I, I always see it from the highway. Do Do you travel with your kids? Do you take them around to see like some of the sites as you make? We do. Yeah, I mean, obviously, like financially, we've been very blessed playing in the NFL to have yeah. the ability to get on a plane, which is not something that I had, you know, growing up. That was it's expensive. We had. Uh, five people in our family. So to go fly somewhere was totally outrageous. Um, but like, for me, I want my kids to experience as much of the world and the country as possible. Um, and selfishly, the thing that I enjoy the most is seeing my kids experience something for the first time. And so I want to take them everywhere and show them everything and like, relive it again through their eyes. How old are your kids? So they're pretty young, uh, seven, six, four, and two. So they, they have no appreciation for who no. you are or what you did. 
No, none, not at all. They're just starting to be football fans, which is cool. We actually went to the Browns game last weekend and it was the first time that we got to the Browns game and they were more excited about what was happening on the field than in the concession stands. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there are stages to childhood. I've got three boys of my own, all teens are older now. And we lived in Chicago when they were young and I would take them to Cubs games and I would measure my success by how many innings I could get through because every inning was <laughs> some sort of different course. It started with yes. an appetizer and then some hot dogs. And some pot. <laughs> if I get to the fourth inning, that, to me, that was a victory. Beautiful. Yeah, right. You got to hold off on the dessert because, you know, once you do dessert, it's time to go home because they're going to get the belly. You dangle if you can make it to the fifth inning. But the Cubs were so bad at times that they just the game was secondary. It just took so long that they were like that. We want the ice cream. Let's get out of here. So you had to give into that. But at some point, they'll appreciate this. Um, But, you know, and I want to go back to Cleveland for a second. But I also think it's interesting how you transition to life after football. And, and when you made that decision, because I've always said with linemen, you can go two ways. You can balloon up to like 400 pounds or you can take it all off. Mark May, a guy that I used to work with in Washington, you know, he's like thinner than I am today. And I'm a pretty thin man. And it looked like months after you were done playing football, you were thin. And it made me wonder, had you made this decision even before you let everybody know that you made the decision? I mean, how did it happen for you? So going into my... 11th year actually no 10th year because I played 11 so going into my 10th year I had a serious conversation with my wife about retiring because my I had left knee surgery and it, it was just really in a bad place I really struggled through the season getting injections and getting my knee drain almost every week and it was not fun I just didn't love it anymore because of what I had to put my body through just to get out in the field and had the conversation with my wife and we kind of decided like well, we'll just see how the rehab goes and we'll just basically play till the wheels fall off because I still love the game, but I just hated what I had to go through. And so my 11th season, um, I played and I could feel as the season started wearing on that my performance was going down because my knee was in such bad shape. And then for better or worse, I tore my tricep tendon, which fully ended the season. And so after I tore my tricep tendon, I was pretty sure that I I wasn't going to come back, but I wasn't ready to go down that path and make that decision fully. And so I was always a skinny person. I, I was 250 when I came into college and I had to eat a lot to gain weight, to get up to 300. And then when I was in the NFL, especially early on, I had to eat a lot and a lot of bad stuff to keep the weight on, to be over 300 pounds. Um, and so I was really looking forward to being done to be lighter so it would help my joints, but also so I could be a little bit more healthy and not eat so crappy because it was starting to take an effect on my whole body. Like the amount of sugar I was eating specifically was just causing a lot of stomach problems and a lot of inflammation. And it was causing a lot of knee pain on top of the degenerative joint disease that I had. Um, And so I just kind of stopped overeating after I hurt my elbow and thought maybe I'm gonna make a decision after the season but I'm not going to worry about just maintaining my weight like I usually do. So I think by the time I retired, I was probably about 285. So I knew that if I decided to come back, I could easily gain 10 to 15 pounds back. That wouldn't be a problem. But if I did decide to retire, I could continue kind of that weight loss and I would have kind of a a decent start on it. So um, I was pretty motivated to lose that weight for a lot of reasons, but primarily to get the weight off my knee. And so it it fell off pretty quick. Yeah. You know, it's so interesting because I'm sure you've been around guys that fell into both categories. There are guys that had a struggle to keep weight off. And there are many guys like you, people don't even realize it that struggle to keep weight on. 
that they have to like think about their calorie intake or they're going to lose weight. They're just not designed to carry that kind of weight. It, you know, as much as, as much fun as it sounds like, we all think, man, it would be great. I get to eat what I want. I have to eat more. It can't be easy. Yeah, I tell people, imagine having the Thanksgiving meal and the feeling that you have after. Like the feeling going in is great. Yeah. The feeling during is great. But at the end, you don't feel so good. <laughs> now, if you had to do that four or five times a day every day, oh. you always are feeling like overstuffed. And food just doesn't taste as good. And honestly, I, I didn't have, I wasn't a picky eater when I was playing, but I didn't have a great palate. But losing weight, and now I'm on a, a calorie-restricted diet compared to what I used to be. Like, now when I do gorge myself and have those Thanksgiving meals, I actually enjoy it. Whereas before, I didn't really love it. Um, and so it, it does become a job, and it becomes, some, becomes something that's always on your mind, and it becomes a stressor. Because you know that if I miss this meal, I'm going to lose seven pounds and then I'm going to go get weighed in on Monday and my coach is going to tear my ass because I'm too light. And so I couldn't go two or three hours without eating a meal. And it really, it put a little, a little stress on the marriage because we'd be on vacation or we'd be out with friends or something. And I'd be like, babe, I have to eat. Like we, I have to eat right now. Like we need to legitimately stop everything we're doing and find the closest place where I can get 3000 calories. Or I'm not going to be able to do anything else. Like I was so stressed about it to like be able to get rid of that stress feels so good. And don't you think, by the way, that people, you know, they have no understanding of like little things like that. And they assume Joe Thomas, he's, you know, all pro tackle, perfect life, you know, and everybody's going to do what he wants. But yeah, your wife's probably like, no, I, I ate 10 minutes ago. I'm not ready for another meal. And there, she, there's probably a lot of conflict there. You're getting in fights with her. Yeah, absolutely. And and it was funny. I remember one day I, I got home and we were probably in our second year of marriage. This was my second year in the NFL. And she made a stir fry, a huge stir fry, but it didn't have any meat in it. It was mostly just vegetables. Oh, and it didn't you didn't, you didn't like go there, sugar. did you? You, you didn't and, go and, and say what's not in it, did you? No, I I, I got I kind of ripped her a little bit and it didn't go over so <laughs> well. But I was like, I, I was like, honey, you this is my job. Like, you don't understand. You can't make stir fry for dinner. It needs to be like overloaded carbs it needs to be overloaded meat every single meal like especially during the season i just came home i probably burned ten thousand calories during the day if i don't have four thousand calories at dinner tonight like i'm gonna lose weight and i'm gonna be in trouble tomorrow and my job is on the line every single day so don't make stir fry anymore basically <laughs> listen uh, i've been married 23 years you've learned the hard way whatever they make that's not the right time to criticize it. That's right. It's amazing. I love it. <laughs> that, that is not the right time to go there, honey. It's wonderful. Maybe a week later, you introduce the idea of what needs to be done, but you don't have to worry about that anymore now that you're out of the game. So we go back. So you're, you're drafted in Cleveland. It's a good fit for you, obviously, lifestyle and comfort for the person that you are. But, you know, all fans ask this. They go, you know, we love, we love the story of the guy that plays his entire career with one team. That's the poster child for greatness in sports. And I've always been the opposite. I, I, I've always appreciated it, but I've always been the opposite when it comes to a guy as great as yourself that probably deserved more at the opposite end of the season. And, you know, I work in a business where I started in Chicago in radio and I went to ESPN and I, I'm now I'm at, at Sirius and nobody criticizes us for leaving. But in sports, oh my goodness, if you leave, what, what's wrong with Joe Thomas? He doesn't love the Browns. And I think, shouldn't Joe Thomas be allowed to do what we do, which is to enjoy maybe more success? And you and I have talked about it in the past. You never really considered that. Yeah, I never did. Uh, I grew up, like a lot of sports fans, like feeling that loyalty to your team and your your 
your uh, program should be the same as the people that play for the team. Like as a fan, you can't possibly imagine ever going and being a fan for a different team. And so I think as a fan, we want to believe the same thing is true with the players that are playing for this team, even though everybody knows that these players were drafted or traded or ended up there through no reason of their own, but still we just want to, there's a part of us that wants to believe that Nick Chubb just loves the Browns and he could never imagine playing for everybody, anybody else. Um, and so I don't know, I, I think there, there had to be some part of that loyalty and little inner fan in me that played into the fact that I never considered leaving Cleveland. Um, but also I think I was a little bit of a realist understanding, you know, NFL contracts are, um, a little bit different than radio contracts. You can't just up and leave. Like they're, they're a little more ironclad, but also if, if you wanted to be a player that would leave a team to try to go chase a championship, it's not exactly guaranteed in the NFL. It's not like the NBA where, you know, LeBron goes down to the heat with, uh, with D Wade and all of a sudden they're like, yeah, we know we're probably going to be in the championship every year because there's, <laughs> all it takes is two or three good players on an NBA team. And you're probably going to compete for a championship football. So much more of a crapshoot. I remember having that conversation with Alex Mack when he signed with the Falcons, like he was just beat down about the losing as was I, and he wanted to go play with a great quarterback. And so he goes to Atlanta with the Falcons. He wanted to put a play for Kyle Shanahan. And I told him, I said, there's no guarantee that they're going to be good. I mean, look at teams across the league. A lot of teams have great franchise quarterbacks and great, uh, coordinators and it, it doesn't work out because the NFL is so competitive from top to bottom. Really the only team that just about guarantees success every year is the Patriots. And they're not, they're not signing a lot of guys off the street because they don't need to. Um, and so I, I think it was just kind of a blend of all those things that, and obviously the, the satisfaction that I had being in Cleveland and the desire, like you talked about being a part of a turnaround was really attractive to me. But Alex did leave and get to play in a Super Bowl. You have no regrets that you never got to play in a game in the month of January? I mean, I wish I did, but I don't have any regrets about the decisions that I made during my career because Alex doesn't have a Super Bowl ring. Sorry, Alex, if you're listening to this, and if the, if the sole reason to go to Atlanta or another player to leave and go play on another team is to win a ring, and if you don't win that ring, you feel it's a failure. A lot of guys are going to be failures because winning a ring in the NFL is so much more of a crapshoot. Yeah, but would be it just like I know winning a ring is a crapshoot, but and and again, you have no regrets about it. But do you ever wonder what that experience would be like preparing for a game that's now the one and done mentality, just the the enjoyment that comes with that stress? Because you know, fans always think that's a horrible situation. I always think players embrace that. That's exactly what they want to be in that win or go home kind of situation that you never got to see. See what that yeah. was all about. I mean. I like I said, I don't think about it because I've been beaten over the head with the Bill Belichick mantra so much during my career about only focusing on the things that you control. I don't really think about that stuff on a daily basis, but certainly uh, I can reflect as you asked me this question back on the emotion and the energy that would have to be pulsing through your veins, knowing that every play matters. And I don't want to be the reason that my team goes home because if we lose today, it's over like that, that uh, emphasis and that elevation of the stakes has to feel amazing. Do you think about the Hall of Fame? Uh, I don't, but I get asked about it. I think I've done enough during my career, so I don't worry about it. I think I'll get nervous when I'm eligible and you're sitting in that hotel room and you're wondering if you got in or not. Yeah, I, let, let me say this, and I feel comfortable saying it. You're going to be in the Hall of Fame. I know that you can, you know, 
I've worked with so many, Brett Favre and James Lofton, all of whom said, it's really hard before to kind of have the conversation because you know the standard that is set. But, you know, I can tell you with, with great confidence that you're going to be part of it. And even though you want to distance yourself from it, it's got to, in your back of your mind, like linger about what I want to say and what I want to do and what that moment's going to be like when it finally rolls around. Because as the clock ticks on, it's going to get closer and closer. Yeah, I, I think as we get a little bit closer to me being eligible, I'll start thinking about those things and start allowing myself to be emotionally involved and attached and place myself into that moment. Uh, but all I can say is I know it's going to be a big party because there hasn't been a lot of Cleveland Browns being <laughs> inducted into the Hall of Fame in recent memory. Well, and, and I've said, you know, amazingly, when you consider about the history of this game, which is 100 years old now, you know, and I talked to Brett Favre about this a lot, and I say, to think that you were part of the 100 greatest players, you know, there's something to be in the Hall of Fame. There's another thing to be in an even more select group where you get a different color jacket. But even just going into the Hall of Fame, when you consider how many guys have put on a uniform, I've, I've talked to a lot of guys who never won a championship, and they said, the Hall of Fame means more to them than the championship because it kind of shows what you meant to the game and that you did the best you possibly could. And people would say, well, that's selfish. But if you do your best and it results in a championship, you did your part. I mean, how do you feel about that? When the time comes, what, what, that, what that item would be like, if, if you know what I mean? Like the fact that yeah. the Hall of Fame, what would, you, would you trade that for a championship ring? I don't know. I mean, I think people ask that all the time. And, and I wonder from like how much, imp uh, how much impact you had on the game is obviously way more making the Hall of Fame because there's plenty of people walking around with Super Bowl rings that didn't play a snap in the Super Bowl, that didn't even play a snap during the season. And so like when I see a Super Bowl ring, I'm like, wow, that's nice. But it doesn't really mean what you gave to the game and really has very little to do with what you gave to the game unless you're Tom Brady yeah unless you're Bill Belichick that's a different ball game but I played with plenty of guys that were practice squad guys on multiple teams that won Super Bowls on several teams never played a snap in the NFL right and so like what that means to them personally I think is clearly less than if you make the Hall of Fame what that means to other players clearly less than making the Hall of Fame and getting the Hall of Fame ring um it's a difficult conversation because if I was able to win a Super Bowl in Cleveland, what that means to the city and the yeah. franchise and the organization, like, would I trade that for my Hall of Fame? I guess you'd have to tell me how good of a player was I? Did I still make <laughs> Pro Bowls or was I just garbage? No, was I up, was I practice left, my guy that never played? Backup left tackle. <laughs> I, oh man, that's tough. I mean, I've never really put myself in that position, but I think if you're just saying. Hey, you're a backup left tackle, but somehow you had a, like an impact on the game to help Cleveland win a Super Bowl, then I would say yes. But if I was just a guy that got a ring in Cleveland, like because you're not part of it, yes, you get the ring, but you weren't part of that, then probably Hall of Fame. All right. Now that you're out of the game, and before before I get you out of here, by the way, I've got to get a good Brady Quinn story. You've got to have at least one that I can share on the <laughs> sure. air. You're out of the game now. And you're a guy that you grew up in Wisconsin, you played football in Wisconsin, you never seem to want to, you know, go to the big city. And, you know, throughout life, when you play at your level, I'm sure there were always people that were like, I want to be friends with Joe Thomas, I want to be friends with Joe Thomas. Who, who are your best friends today? Are they, are they high school buddies? Are they college guys? Are they pro guys? Do you have them at every level of your life? Who, do, who are the yeah. guys that you say in a pinch, this is who mm -hmm. I'm going to? 
Yeah, I'm still really close with friends of mine that I played basketball with in grade school. Uh, I'm, I've still got like a nice circle of friends that I played college football with. And then same thing in the NFL. I, I would say probably there's probably two or three people at each level, like grade school, high school, uh, college, and then NFL that I'm, I would consider my best friends. Um, and I keep in regular contact with a lot of those guys. Did, did you get along with your siblings? I did. There was a big age gap between me and my brother, who's four years younger than my sister was four years younger than him. And my brother actually lives in China. So there's, there, there's a big separation in our family. My sister actually lives in Madison, which is kind of funny. So we live right down the road from each other. So we see each other all the time and we're really close. Uh, my brother, not as close. A lot of it is because he lives in China. Yeah. <laughs> not, not in Wuhan, I hope. No, he's not in Wuhan. Uh, he's in uh, Taiwan, which I don't know exactly know how close. I think it's like 600 miles from Wuhan. But um, but we only get to see him like once every other year. And we haven't been able to see him since the pandemic. So it's hard to have that really close relationship. And never any jealousy with all the attention that you may have gotten from, you know, the great athlete that you were. And by the way, if I'm not mistaken, I think I saw and Wikipedia is not always right. But I think I saw that you were a place kicker in high school. Is that true? I did it all. You know, we didn't have a big I high school football team. <laughs> we were only about 20 kids on the varsity. And so I was the punter, the kicker, and then I played both ways. Uh, but the only team I didn't play on was the punt return team. But other than that, I was on the field the entire game. Um, and so, yo, my brother, that was a question. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we had very different paths. He was a swimmer and he never played any of the same sports that I did. He was more like the academic, uh, not a great athlete, but participated because he was a good sport and people loved having him on the team. And so I think there probably wasn't a lot of jealousy there because we weren't competing for the same things. You know, we kind of just had different paths. But but all the attention that you got didn't bother you. I mean, even, I'm sure from your parents, too, you got attention with all the games that they had to attend and, you know, all the award ceremonies, et cetera. That never got in the way of the family. You know, maybe if you asked him, he would say, yeah, a little bit, but it never became an issue, I would say. And I think part of that was just because there was that age gap, but also the different uh, different lanes in life that we, we kind of took. You know, the one thing I know is, is too, and I've seen families where there's a big age gap. It, it's kind of hard when you're really young to be very close because when you're eight and somebody's four, big difference. When you're 12 <laughs> right. and somebody's eight, big difference. When yeah. did you get close with them? Yeah, uh, like you mentioned, once college and then beyond. Because even I remember when I got married, my sister was 16, I think. So like think about a huge that. age yeah. gap. I mean, think about that. Like a 16-year-old coming to my wedding, like me and my friends are all hammering the beers. And like there's my 16-year-old sister who's a bridesmaid, right? And so it really wasn't until um, my sister got married, which was maybe five, six years ago. And then when we moved back to Wisconsin, we, we moved in a, the same area. Um, we got really close and because you are, you're, you're starting to do the same things. You know, we're starting to have kids at the same time. You're both married and you're closer, not closer in age, but like once you're an adult, you're an adult. Yeah. I mean, you start sharing the same experiences. Like yeah. you said, you have kid dynamics, what you do here, what you do there, yeah, yeah. but you know, it, it's, and listen, I know this, not all families get along. I mean, you yeah. know, there are times, you know, everybody thinks, oh, everybody must get along. Not, not everybody gets along all the time, Joe. Right. You know that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. You yeah, know, I feel really right. lucky. I know you have, uh, I know you only have a couple minutes left. Give me something on Brady Quinn. You were, so, now, let, let me share with our audience. You were his roommate. Uh, the so, year, yes. 
So, and you know this, Joe, he thought he was going to be the third pick in the draft by the Cleveland Browns. Yes. Yep. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then you get selected. Uh, <laughs> I've heard him lament this a long time and then have to wait until you circled back for the second yep. pick in the, mm -hmm. the second first round pick in the draft. I don't even, did you know anything about Brady Quinn? He was at Notre Dame. So you're, yeah, I, knew, I knew a little bit about him because obviously he was a great quarterback in college and we were both seniors at the same time. Um, but I, I'll say to rub it in the wounds of Brady Quinn was yeah. not only did the Browns draft him after me, but then on the way to Cleveland for our introductory press conference, they picked Brady up in New York because he was in New York sweating it out right. and then had to fly all the way to Milwaukee to pick me up. And I was just fresh off the boat. So I was wearing like jeans and a t-shirt, like real comfy, feeling great. He was still in his suit that he had all sweaty from the whole day of, of waiting to get picked. And then they went back uh, to Cleveland that night on the owner's jet for the, uh, the press conference. And then we were roommates. And he had such a bad snoring problem uh, that he would keep me up at night. And to the point where the coach uh, actually agreed, even though all rookies had to room together, he actually agreed to give us separate rooms because he was such a disruptive snorer. So uh, as pretty as he is on the outside, he's a mess on the inside and uh, he keeps people up snoring at night. It's terrible. I wonder how Alicia deals with it. That's gotta be crazy, That's a great right? question. <laughs> You know, but but there's another thing that you said. It, it it's I think what makes you unique. You know, you only get drafted once in your life. You're going to be a high pick in the NFL draft. The chance to walk up on stage, shake hands with the commissioner, uh, get everybody cheering and all excited. And you went out on the boat with your dad to go fishing, which you can do a million times. And I know you've told the story, but I'm just fascinated by. I'm thinking if I was ever in your position. Man, I would be basking in the sunlight. I would be enjoying every moment with people shaking my hands, although not anymore. Now we would just bow because it would be, you know, you can't make human contact anymore. But, and, and you don't take advantage of that moment. What went into that decision? Did you give it any thought? No, it was easy. Remember what we talked about before? I was afraid of New York City. I was afraid of the spotlight. I was afraid of meeting all these people. Now, for me, like it never one time in my life did I imagine and dream of the moment I was drafted and being on stage wearing a suit. Like that seemed at, at the time, that was the least enjoyable thing I could possibly think about was having to stand in front of a bunch of people with a suit on in New York City and shake hands with a bunch of people that I didn't know. Like if I was gonna get drafted, I'm great with getting drafted. It's just a matter of finding out where I'm gonna get to go continue my football career. And I wanna be with my dad fishing because I knew that things were gonna get a little crazy after that. And so I wanted to enjoy one more opportunity doing that because I knew after I got drafted, it was gonna be rookie mini camp, OTAs, veteran mini camp, and onto the season. And I might not have an opportunity. And if I was supposed to celebrate getting drafted, which I still didn't understand, I was like, who cares? Like, it's just finding out where you're going. But if I had to celebrate, I wanted to be with people that I loved and that were part of that process of getting there. All right. So if your kids become great athletes and they're going to be a top five pick in the national hockey league or in the national football league or whatever it is, you're going to tell them to stay home and go fishing with you. I'm not going to tell them anything. <laughs> they can do whatever they want, but I'll be ready on the fishing boat if they want to go. <laughs> and, and were you sure you were in communication? Yeah, that was the most important thing. That was the only thing my agent said. I, I, I told my agent, I, like, I, I don't want to be part of the circus of the draft. But he said, well, you got to be able to be within cell phone range. I know you want to go fishing, but don't get lost because they need to call you and talk to you before uh, they pick you because they want to know that, hey, you haven't been arrested or B, you haven't been injured some way in a bar fight like the night before the draft. 
So if, if we're living in the landline era, you're not going fishing with your dad? No, nah, we'd be in trouble. We'd have to get one of the Zach Morris big old uh, uh, bag phones. All right, I'm going to let you go, but what's the perfect weekend for Joe Thomas? Now it's probably, man, taking the kids somewhere really nice uh, where I can go fishing in the morning, but then be the dad during the day, maybe make pancakes in the morning, uh, hang out like 70 degree weather, somewhere nice and sunny. That's that's a pretty pretty good weekend. Yeah, but be honest, sometimes they drive you crazy, right? I mean, I've got- They always drive me crazy. That's why I would go fishing in the morning to get my zen, and then I could deal with their crazy at least till lunchtime. And then, you know, pawn them off with my wife. All right. And you're liking the broadcast and you like doing the- uh, the It's fun. Yeah. Like I said, it it gives you a chance to post the football. You like putting on makeup. Yeah. And the the great part is now I have to put on my own makeup since we're working from home. We're not going to the stadium anymore. So that's right. uh, That's been fun learning how to put on foundation. Now, did did somebody give you a tutorial? Did you get a tutorial in like, what is it? No. Whatever it is. No. No. All they did is they sent me a FedEx package of whatever. I don't even know what they call it stuff. And like a sponge and they're like, here, wear this for tonight. (laughs) (laughs) And does your wife help you? She was going to help me, but like we were in a time crunch, as you know, like a lot of times before you go on TV, there's just so much that goes on and it's always last minute. And like, I didn't have time. She was trying to keep the kids quiet because we're doing the show from the house. And so I just was like, all right, I guess we'll just try this, see what happens. Yeah. I will tell you that when I first started doing television, there was no makeup artist either. And you know, you had to get the spot. I literally had to go to makeup counters in New York no kidding. and like in Macy's, you know, where all the women are like, you know, trying on the makeup, I was doing the same thing. that's beautiful yeah it's a great image for my wife to live with um joe listen i know i gotta get you out of here i I love talking to you i love when you're on our show with brady quinn i'm happy that he's not here today uh we could do this for hours but it's great that you're still involved with the game and i'm glad we could catch up thanks for being here yeah thanks for having me on bruce thanks for listening to again one of the good guys one of the greatest left tackles to ever play the game joe thomas I hope you enjoyed the conversation we had with him. I hope you enjoyed all the conversations we have every Thursday. And you can find my podcast on the SiriusXM app and wherever you get your podcast. I hope you'll be with me next Thursday. I'm Bruce Murray.